All right, thanks. I know there's a lot of energy uh, around in this topic right now. Um, uh, it was a little bit of a rushed press on this. It was a, a topic that I gave a brief talk on uh, at one of our national meetings recently. And uh, after having some dialogue with Brendan, I expanded it out for the, for the purposes of this talk. We are here. Okay, so I got a lot of uh, feedback uh, when this topic was announced. Uh, some of it, people excited to have some dialogue about this, some space. Fred Bernstein was very quick to point out that I needed to update my picture. He goes, dude, that's, that's not even you. Um, and he's right. I mean, I've been here 10 years, uh, and 10 years takes a, you know, wear and tear on you. And um, So I was in clinic yesterday and took a photo of me. And, uh, it's definitely, you know, it is what it is. I don't have a blue... I don't have the blue background, but you can see my enthusiasm for epic. <laughs> So uh, disclosures, I have no financial disclosures. Um, uh, I also don't claim to have any particular knowledge in this area other than things that I've acquired through my background um, uh, and personal reading. It is something that's uh, uh, it's an important topic to me uh, in a number of different ways. Just by way of background, because I think point of view and perspective are important. Firearms are something that have been important to me my whole life. Um, uh, I started competing in biathlon. Uh, when I was a teenager, did that up through my early 20s. It's still a sport that I uh, follow and enjoy. Um, I obviously had some background in the military. I'm familiar with a lot of the weapons we'll be talking about today. Um, and as a responsible firearm owner, uh, it's important to me uh, that, uh, that I've uh, done some teaching of my own daughters. They enjoy shooting. Um, uh, we do that responsibly. I store weapons in my home very responsibly. Um, uh, and so uh, again, uh, it, it's something that I take seriously across the board. And as a clinician, I have some experience dealing with firearms um, uh, in other ways, and I will tell you that I'm uh, well acquainted with the damage that they can do. So uh, a modest proposal, uh, with apologies to Jonathan Swift, uh, pediatric physicians should be leaders in developing policy to address firearm death and injury in the United States. I firmly believe that. Um, uh, I also believe uh, that in order to do this, you have to have a real clear understanding of the issue at hand. You need to understand the arguments on the right. You need to understand the arguments on the left. And if you're at either one of those dipoles, in my opinion, you'll be completely ineffective in pushing this issue forward towards a solution. Um, so public health perspective on firearm violence in the United States. We have a problem. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the numbers. 30, around 32,000 fatalities in the United States last year related to firearms. Um, if we take a look at the majority of those, uh, the majority of those um, are suicide. When we start talking about murder, um, uh, sadly, a lot of this uh, is minorities, black-on-black -black violence in cities. Uh, and the reality is we're going to talk about this issue. I understand people are emotional and they're charged up from Parkland. Uh, this is a much bigger issue uh, that impacts our society that we need to think about holistically in terms of moving this forward. This is a 2010 survey um, that looked at uh, 23 high-income countries, and I think that's important. I don't think comparing us to Uruguay really makes a whole lot of sense if we're going to talk about firearm violence. Uh, 23 high-income countries. The United States, for children under the age of 14 and under, 90% of all fatalities, firearms, in those 23 countries happen in the United States of America. Uh, that is a problem. Firearm injuries in pediatric patients, uh, even more specifically in this country. It's the third leading cause of death in children age 1 to 17. Fill in your CME now. Um, 2016 data, uh, this is uh, um, uh, off of, you, you can go on to, uh, 
uh, website uh, listed below, CDC WISPARS, and you can pull this data for every year. Uh, for 2016, 851 homicides, 633 suicides, 103 accidental injuries in the United States in children under the age of 17 and above the age of one. Uh, it's a great review in pediatrics that occurred recently, well worth looking at. Um, how, how are firearms different in this country uh, than other countries? One of them is a magnitude of the problem. We have an estimated, okay, because there's no registry, an estimated 300 million firearms in the United States of America. That's one firearm for every man, woman, and child in the United States is out there now. And we're selling, we continue to sell units about around, again, because we don't have a registry, we don't know for sure, around 10 million new weapons uh, uh, added every year. Those are astounding numbers. Uh, and when people you know, pull out uh, sort of analogies, look at what they did in Australia, look what they did here, look what they did there. We're talking about 300 million firearms and nobody knows where they are. This is a complicated problem to address for sure. How many, how many people, uh, if you feel comfortable, how many people are firearm owners in the room? Okay. So if we sit here and we take a look, uh, that's actually not unusual. It's, you know, it looks like probably less than 10%. Uh, clearly, depending on where you are in the country, if you're in uh, the far west, if you're in the southeast, or sorry, south, um, you're talking much higher proportion of firearm owners. Um, the large cities versus rural areas, fewer firearms owned in uh, um, uh, urban environments as opposed to um, uh, uh, rural areas. Uh, men are more likely than women to own firearms, and political affiliation also links that. But on average, 30% of U.S. households will have a firearm somewhere in them. Um, constitutional aspects of firearm ownership in America. This is also an area where we differ from a lot of countries. Uh, the Second Amendment is a really curious amendment uh, in the U.S. Constitution. Uh, it was not as contentious as it is today uh, uh, over the vast majority of the history of this country. So for the first 200 years, it was really rarely litigated in courts or even discussed. Um, uh, the text of it is interesting. The punctuation is odd. And if you start to really delve into the history of this, and a lot of people have, um, uh, it gets complicated in terms of interpreting this. Uh, Jim had some comments uh, you know, when he talks about you know, the sort of state of mind uh, of the framers of uh, the Constitution about you know, sort of what their thoughts were. I can promise you. Uh, there's been academic uh, work, most of it funded by the NRA, since 1980 that has looked at this very carefully. And while we've been asleep at the wheel, they've done a tremendous amount of work looking at this uh, and have uh, plenty of uh, things that they can refer to in terms of their thoughts on the Second Amendment. But there are two basic arguments that are out there. Uh, one is just a, a general constitutional view, um, originalist versus non-originalist people who say, the Constitution was written, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a living document, it's not evolving with culture in the United States of America, and they meant what they meant. Uh, and if you want to make a change to that, fine. Amend the Constitution. Um, and there are other people who feel that it is. You know, the culture in the United States of America evolves, uh, uh, and therefore our Constitution uh, should evolve. Uh, that is not, uh, I can tell you right now, the view of everyone out there. Um, uh, Jim's view, uh, while I understand it, I respect it, that's not the view of many people uh, who are constitutional scholars. Uh, from the standpoint of uh, this actual amendment itself, individu individual versus collective interpretation, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. 
What do they mean? What were they talking about? Were they talking about having a firearm available so that you could be in a militia? Were they talking about a more individual right? This goes back to English common law. Um, it goes back to state constitutions. Um, it's not a superficial thing. It's not something you can gloss over. And I will tell you that people who are passionate about this issue um, really, they, they understand the scholarship of what's been written about the Second Amendment. Uh, they also understand some of the legal challenges to the Second Amendment. You know, as I uh, pointed out earlier on, for 200 years there really wasn't a whole lot of interest in this. If you take a look, you know, up through, you know, 1900, only two challenges to the Second Amendment. Most of those focused on the 14th Amendment. I'll get there in a second. But if you take a look, U.S. versus Crookshank in 1876, this is reformational politics. You had, you know, a group of 100 African Americans uh, who were lynched and killed um, following a gubernatorial uh, election in uh, Louisiana. And ultimately, uh, federal charges were filed under the Second Amendment and First Amendment of the Constitution, and they were dismissed. The Supreme Court said, hey, uh, you know, if you take a look at the restrictions of the Second Amendment, they just apply to the federal government. The states can do what they want or remand it to the states to deal with it. Those two decisions really uh, serve the basis or provide the basis uh, for uh, why it's possible to pass local gun uh, uh, legislation, why we can put certain limits on firearms at a state level, um, uh, but you can't completely ban them. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. Um, so again, some, some, some legislation you can put in place, but you can't completely restrict firearm ownership based on those two decisions. U.S. versus Miller, a uh, very small decision, basically said yes, uh, uh, following the development of U.S. highway system and the prohibition. Okay, another question on your CME there. Um, uh, and we'll talk about some of the laws that were passed, but basically we introduced legislation saying that certain types of firearms, automatic weapons, shot-off shotguns, uh, you shouldn't be able to have those unless you have a specific license. Uh, and they said, here, a shot-off shotgun, yes, it's, it's possible to restrict somebody uh, um, uh, owning one of those. The two big ones that uh, really you have to have some familiarity with if you want to have uh, engage in intelligent dialogue are D.C. versus Heller in 2008 and McDonald versus Chicago. These were two decisions that, that looked at gun ownership and local municipalities' ability to say, no, you can't have a firearm. Uh, D.C. versus Heller, um, uh, the Supreme Court determined it's a five to four decision, that it was an individual's right to keep a firearm for personal defense, okay, legal personal defense, uh, even if you, you know, weren't involved in a militia. So that whole individual versus collective, pretty well determined, you know, by this decision. That was in a federal municipality, though, D.C. In 2010, that's expanded out. Now we're looking at Chicago gun control laws. They said, yes, that applies to the states, too, again, through extension of the 14th Amendment. So understanding that these things are out there, understanding where this comes from, you may have your own opinions about the Second Amendment. That's fine, the Supreme Court does too. Um, interestingly though, uh, and this is very important, sometimes I'll engage in dialogue with people on the far right, and they say ultimately what DC versus Heller said is, you know, uh, anyone can have a gun, they can have any gun they want, and you'll see this is what's gonna happen. And not only is that not true, but the darling of the conservative court, Antonin Scalia, and you take a look at his comment here, it is not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever, in any manner whatsoever, and for whatever purpose. Um, uh, uh, you will talk to people, I mean again, people have varying perspectives, wrong perspectives in terms of what really is out there. So this is in his majority opinion uh, of DC versus Heller. Um, you know, there's definitely some space for us to have some dialogue on this issue. Um, uh, from the right themselves. So a neutral summary. Um, do we have a problem with firearm violence in the United States? Absolutely, we do. 
And firearm ownership is to some degree protected from infringement by federal and state government. It is. Um, those are, those are uh, uh, starting things that, uh, again, I think are important uh, uh, to establish and allow us to have some dialogue. Federal firearm legislation and overview. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about historical con uh, context. I think that's very important in this day and age where we continue to have you know, events. The reality is current events are what drive changes in legislation. Uh, that's absolutely happened. And we're going to talk a little bit about the functional aspects of the law. And I definitely need to refer to my notes on this or I will get something wrong. So, so let's just talk key federal firearm legislation. So really the first thing that was passed uh, was in the 1930s. Again, interstate highway system and prohibition. Um, the Valentine's Day massacre, okay, uh, dwarfed by what we just experienced on Valentine's Day. Eight murders, uh, I believe, in Chicago. Um, uh, really sort of you know, moved this forward and said, yeah, we need to do something about this. Title II weapons restrictions, we talked about that, fully automatic weapons, sawed-off shotguns and rifles. Federal firearm licenses were created so that there was some sort of interstate control of uh, firearm commerce. And they were started to introduce banned individuals, okay? Uh, um, uh, you can't have um, uh, convicted felons running around with firearms. That's what they tried to do uh, in here. Fast forward now to 1968. Um, uh, we've got the civil rights uh, uh, movement going on. Uh, we have Martin Luther King uh, being killed. We have President Kennedy being killed by a rifle that was purchased through mail order. Um, uh, obviously, you know, Congress was in an uproar over that. Uh, and so we passed this bill. What did we create with that? A paper trail for all firearm sales. Remember, this predated computers. Serial numbers um, uh, on all firearms. Um, and it really increasing the power of the ATF. So this is where we start to get more and more power provided to ATF uh, and the federal government to enforce, uh, uh, to enforce laws. Um, and unfortunately, the reality is, and we'll talk about this later on, we blew it, okay? Because what the ATF really did is they started to prosecute normal law-abiding citizens uh, uh, for uh, minor violations. That's where most of their prosecutions were, uh, brought in dollars to them. Uh, and what was the result? Uh, uh, people got very upset. The NRA, we'll talk about later on, got very upset about that. And ultimately, uh, and probably rightly so. Um, and so the Fire Own Owner Protection Act was pushed back in 1986. And ultimately, what did that do? Uh, it, it uh, uh, importantly, Banned. This is the legislation. If you want to know why we can't have a firearm registry, it's because of this law. So in 1968, we've got paper records. Now by uh, 1986, what do we have? We have computers. We have the ability to create a registry. This is the law that's on the books that prevents us from doing that. And the paranoia that sits behind uh, uh, the gun uh, lobby relative to us not being able to do that comes from you know, abuses that, uh, that ATF had uh, that led to the creation of this law. I think that's really important context for people to understand. Uh, attempted assassination of um, uh, uh, President Reagan ultimately leads to the Brady Bill. This was the creation of the backgrounds check system that we have in place today. Um, that was probably the most important uh, component of that. Um, I, it also, though, included the gun show loophole, uh, which is where 40% of firearm sales happen. Um, so uh, great creation, but uh, legislation's complicated, and, and trying to create something that's going to be effective is hard. Um, uh, this is a problem that's hard to fix. Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. This is the assault weapons ban that most people are familiar with, 1994. Ten years of limitation on the sales of uh, assault weapons. 
Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about this uh, later on. The reality is, based on the way it was uh, uh, established, the definition of assault rifles, uh, uh, based on uh, um, uh, a lot of uh, the uh, grandfather clauses that were included in it, probably not a terribly effective bill. And there's really no way to demonstrate that it had any meaningful impact on crime or, or violence in the United States of America. Um, it also happened during a decade where uh, crime and violence were decreasing. So difficult to sort of parse out the relative effectiveness of this. A couple of really important ones here to understand, particularly as a healthcare uh, provider. 1996 Dickey Amendment. How many people have heard of this? Anyone? Okay, the Dickey Amendment was a rider that was added to the Appropriations Bill uh, uh, that said you cannot use CDC dollars for uh, uh, any sort of research uh, into gun violence. Uh, we can't do that. Know where that came from? Know where this was created? Because all these things are reactive, right? A 1993 New England Journal of Medi Medicine article written by a public health provider um, uh, the, uh, uh, the AAP cites this article in their position statement saying that homes with firearms, uh, uh, people are more likely to be uh, uh, um, killed uh, uh, by that weapon. Um, uh, it's a, I think it's an interesting paper. I don't know statistically. It's, it's a difficult thing to parse through. But the NRA took that paper and said, you get federal funding for this, this will not happen again. So understand where these things, again, I think the context is very important to understand where these things come from. Still in place, the CDC is terrified uh, uh, that if they do work, they're gonna get defunded. Um, and I think there's probably good reason for them uh, to think that based on behavior of our politicians even recently. Um, Protection of Lawful Commerce Act, again, just demonstrating the power of uh, the, the NRA here. Uh, they were receiving sort of class action lawsuits, lawsuits by municipalities. They passed legislation that protected uh, 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 gun manufacturers and sellers from suits if uh, someone decided to, to kill uh, another individual with a weapon that was purchased through them. And then finally, the TR Amendment in 2012, ultimately what this did is it also limited uh, the ability of anyone outside of a direct prosecution, of someone involved in prosecution of a specific law enforcement event uh, from going in and looking at trace data. Uh, limits our ability to do any research uh, into this. So, you know, we're hampered on a number of different levels. Uh, I'm going to focus on Dickey and TR a bit later on because I think they're things to target. How about the state of Connecticut? There's one thing about if we sit here and think about firearms, understanding that it's not just federal law, there's state law that ends up impacting a lot of these things. And in this state, uh, you do need a permit uh, to purchase a firearm. Uh, we are an open and concealed uh, uh, carry state. You can do this, but it requires a permit. It's a shall issue permit, meaning they have to have a reason not to issue this to you. Um, and there's some limited discretion of municipalities, but not much. Uh, it's pretty easy, actually. You have to just go through the process. You can get a permit. We do have an assault weapon law uh, that's on the books. We're one of, I believe, seven states that has them. Um, ours is relatively restrictive in terms of definitions. Um, and magazine capacity restrictions are also in place in the state. Um, uh, so objectives of gun laws, what are we trying to do? So it's real easy to say, we need to fix this problem, we need to pass gun laws. Okay, well, what exactly do we want to do with those laws? Um, and in general, you know, laws that are passed fall into one of these categories. So we can regulate firearm design. Um, uh, we can say that certain specific types of firearms and accessories should or should not be available for sale. Um, you'll see some of the complications that are present in that when we talk about what is an assault weapon a little later on. Um, we can regulate the transfer and trade of firearms. Okay, a lot of talk about that uh, in terms of background checks, universal background checks. Define conditions that prohibit a person from possession fi possessing firearms. 
we talk about criminals, we talk about you know people with uh, domestic abuse charges, uh, uh, we talk about you know, uh, people with mental illness. Um, these things have been in place for a long time. There are certainly ways to tweak them. We can restrict carrying of concealed firearms outside of the home. Uh, pretty much all 50 states now, concealed carry has been a big push uh, of the gun lobby over the past uh, 20 years, most states. Uh, I, I think it's either 47 or 50 have some uh, uh, concealed carry uh, laws on the books. And prescription uh, and education of safe storage practices. Uh, this is a big one uh, that impacts people in this room. You may be familiar with uh, 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 Docs versus Glocks legislation. Uh, uh, that was on the uh, uh, books in, in Florida, uh, which is kind of absurd. So big problem, we don't have a lot of data, okay? We don't know which of these strategies work. They may make sense, okay? Uh, it can make intuitive sense, but whether or not uh, a law actually achieves what's intended um, uh, is a real question. And I will tell you that if guns are, if firearms are important to you in terms of your livelihood, in terms of your culture, uh, uh, you know, I will tell you that growing up, I had family members who that's how they put food on the table. My brother uh, uh, didn't make a lot of money. And so, you know, his deer hunt and his moose hunt, that's how he fed his family for at least two or three years before he really established himself in terms of an income. Um, that doesn't resonate with a lot of people in this room. I promise you there are plenty of places in the country where it's a very, very important part of how they get by. Um, but understanding that we don't have great, uh, great data uh, to support any of these things um, is part of the problem that we have. In terms of impact of firearm legislation, I said we don't have a lot of data. We don't have a registry, okay? Um, we can take a look at some of the databases that are out there. If you're familiar with any of these, there are surveys that are available, the National Crime Victimization Survey. This has been done for 30 or 40 years now, I believe twice a year. A lot of the information in terms of demographics on gun violence come from this survey. It's relatively scientific, but there are limitations. It wasn't designed to look at firearm violence. Crime reports, FBI uniform crime reports, these are not mandated reports, uh, so they're very incomplete and spotty. Um, and then databases, the National Violent Death Reporting System, this is something that was introduced back in 2002 actually by Hemingway, he's one of the authors I'll talk about in a moment here. That at least was designed to look in part at firearm violence. All the other things, the National Electronic Injury Surveillance System, National Vital Statistics Systems, while they exist, they weren't designed to look at firearm issues. And if you start to look at huge population data, it, it becomes problematic. And nothing, uh, nothing is more evident, uh, uh, nowhere is that more evident than right here. Uh, you need to know these two names if you want to get engaged in dialogue about firearms. Um, uh, Lott, John Lott, um, he's an economist, okay? Uh, uh, and ultimately uh, a, a brilliant math mathematician. He's very good at pushing numbers around. Uh, and he has cited consistently, since 1998, he's done a few um, uh, different versions of this book, but he took a look at uh, by county uh, data in terms of uh, law enforcement reports of homicide, violent crimes in a number of ways. And ultimately what he's done by pushing through the numbers and doing a lot of these models is he said that concealed carry has resulted in a reduction in homicide and violent crime uh, anywhere that it's been introduced over time. Uh, what I will tell you is the math is very, very fuzzy. Um, and in fact, the National Research Council in 2005 put together uh, a really, uh, I mean, a fantastic panel of experts who went back through criminologists, economists, public health people, and said, you know, the math just doesn't add up. Uh, the problem is uh, that because of the way this was constructed, people on either side, you still have a lot of people who looked a lot, 
um, who's now, uh, he's at a think tank, he's a Fox News contributor. Uh, this guy has incredible authority uh, when he's talking about this. Uh, if you listen to him speak, he's very, uh, he's very persuasive. Uh, but he says, more guns, less crime, that's the way to go. You're wondering where that argument comes from? It comes from John Lott. Uh, as healthcare providers, David Hemingway, I mean, this guy's a, a, I mean, he's a, he's a giant. Um, uh, I think CDC labeled him one of the uh, 20 most influential uh, clinician scientists of the past 20 years. I mean, he's a, he's a remarkable guy. Um, and he, he really champions a public health approach to prevention over punishment. He says, look, we've done this with seatbelts in cars, okay, and uh, you know, uh, other sort of public safety issues. Why can't we do this with firearms? Firearms, you know, are a problem. Uh, they're a real crisis in this country. I think he makes very persuasive arguments. Lot eviscerates him talking about his math, okay? And I'm sorry, but if you ask me about proxies for firearm ownership, okay, which is magazine subscriptions or fraction of suicides that are committed with firearms as opposed to other means, uh, I don't know anything about this. I can't look at ecological studies, interrupted time studies, or case control study design and make any sense out of it in terms of who's right and who's wrong. So I really defer to experts. Uh, from your perspective, what you need to know, again, if you want to be involved in firearm advocacy, you have to at least be familiar with these names and what the arguments are on both sides, even if you're a math idiot like I am. Um, the bottom statement, I think, is very much true. Increasingly, it's clear that the gun issue is not one of evidence-based public safety, because we lack real good data on this, but it's of culture. You know, which dipole are you gravitating towards? The reality is, again, if we're sitting here talking about evidence for almost every empirical question about firearms and violence, it requires periodic, scientifically acceptable measures of firearm acquisition, availability, and use. We don't have them. And I don't think we're going to get those uh, on the near uh, horizon. Again, this is from 2005, this really fantastic thing, a uh, paper that was put together um, uh, by the National Research Council. Um, uh, uh, it's a good read if you want to read, if you have 300 pages of time in you. Um, it's a little dense. These are really the three focuses that I have, um, you know, in terms of you're asking, you know, me, what do I care about? Uh, I, I, think, I think that we need to re-examine these three issues very, very carefully to come up with a long-term solution. There are no short-term solutions in my mind. But long-term solution, we need to critically look at registries. We need to understand, you know, why uh, we can't do them now and what would be involved in terms of us moving towards a space where that would be acceptable to people. And we need to be able to do research. Uh, these last two, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult for me to understand why we can't find common ground uh, um, with our partners on the right to make that happen. So what have professional organizations had to say about firearm violence in the United States? So first of all, uh, my organizations, or at least my parent organizations in terms of adult, I'm embarrassed to say not a goddamn word. They've said absolutely nothing. They've generated no statements at all. Uh, uh, publicly uh, uh, in support of um, any sort of restriction of firearm ownership, um, uh, uh, and, and uh, it's, uh, it's nauseating to me. The American Academy of Pediatrics, um, I, I will tell you that uh, your organization, I'm also a member, okay, I'm a member largely because of this issue, um, uh, has been very much on the forefront, okay, uh, very principled in terms of this approach. Their initial policy, their, their most recent policy statement on this comes from, it predates Newtown. Um, and I think it ends up uh, you know, having some, uh, some very good points. But one of the biggest problems that we have 
uh, or that I have personally with the American Academy of Pediatrics returned this statement, is you tell me reading this, the AAP affirms that the most effective measure to prevent suicide, homicide, and unintentional firearm-related injuries to children and adolescents is the absence of guns from homes and communities. Doesn't create a whole lot of space for dialogue. And so while it's very principled, uh, uh, and I, uh, I can understand where it comes from, uh, I think uh, ultimately it's not a terribly useful statement in terms of being able to make progress. Um, uh, if you want to fall on your sword, I think fantastic. If you want to make progress on this issue, I think it goes nowhere. Uh, and that's, that's, that's their lead. Um, it's a problem. Statement on firearms, the American College of Surgeons, this was immediately post-Newtown. Uh, and what I will say is I, I think they lost a lot of credibility when they came out with this. Um, uh, if what we're going to do is address firearm violence in the United States of America, mass shootings, they're horrible, okay? But they're not the biggest problem that we have. And if we're starting, again, if you're trying to engage in dialogue and your number one line is you come to people and say, we're going to ban civilian access to assault weapons, large ammunition clips, and munitions, immediately I think what ends up happening is you, you, you immediately uh, dismiss any potential for dialogue. So I, I know where this comes from. I was part of that passion uh, at the time. Newtown is a big reason why I'm standing up here. Uh, but the reality is not terribly helpful and politically naive if you really want to push dialogue forward. Uh, uh, this call to action from 2014 to 2015 uh, I think was much more measured. Uh, we'll take a look at the specific summary of recommendations. Uh, they talk about universal background checks, elim elimination of physician gag laws, restricting manufacturers, so it's not quite as prescriptive in terms of saying, you know, uh, uh, it doesn't shut the door in terms of dialogue with people on the issue of assault weapons and large capacity magazines. I have my own feelings about it, but again, I think politically this is a smarter statement. And it also doesn't just focus on gun control. It takes looks at other issues such as improved access to mental health services. Um, I think important. Understanding the challenge. So uh, people in this room, our CEO, people I think have strong, uh, 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 strong and passionate uh, feelings about, um, uh, about firearms in the United States right now. And that's great. I think we really need to channel that. Uh, what I will say about the American College of uh, Surgeons is they've rebounded. Uh, and what the work they're doing right now, I think is absolutely fantastic. They've conducted a few surveys of their ownership just to sort of let's, let's get back here and try to understand the culture of uh, firearm ownership in the United States. So these are members of the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. Correct, Brendan? Because Brendan's on this paper. You see him second author. Ultimately, uh, what they identified in their membership is there are divergent views on firearm ownership. The first is firearms are important for personal defense and emblematic of personal freedom. These are physicians. These are surgeons. Firearms pose a threat to personal safety, emblematic of culture of violence in America. Okay, By a show of hands, how many people agree with philosophy number one that's espoused? Okay, how about number two? Okay, what do you think the breakdown is on the committee on trauma for this? 50 to 55% of those surveyed identified with number one. Okay, these are not idiots, okay? Uh, uh, these are not hot, well, maybe we're hotheads, I don't know. So uh, th these, are, th these are intelligent human beings, uh, and I think dismissing that point of view outright, uh, you're not going to have a seat at the table. You're not going to be able to move this forward. You need to understand this point of view. Okay? Understanding the uh, gun advocate's point of view. Does anyone remember this in 2000? Okay, I promise you there are a lot of people who did. I want to say these words again for everyone within the sound of my voice to hear and to heed, especially for you, Mr. Gore, from my cold, dead hands. 
I, 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 uh, like speechless. Wow. Um, but I will tell you, this is the this is the bunker hill um, uh, of many many people out there, and so we can chuckle in, in a lot of ways. It's great. I don't think it's terribly useful because um, can I tell you something? They've been smarter about what they've done than we've ever been on this issue. They're committed to this issue. Okay, they're committed to this issue because they've perceived abuses, like we talked about. This is 19. This is the transcript again, a really riveting read, 1982. Um, of uh, a Senate Judiciary Committee looking at abuses by ATF um, based on the 1968 laws. This led to the 1986 Firearm Owners Protection Act. Um, this galvanizes them. This makes them, this is a huge fundraiser for them, okay? What else? Our own CEO, love you, Jim. I, maybe, maybe you're watching this. Um, in his statement, talked about use of an automatic weapon, okay, in Parkland. There was no automatic weapon used in Parkland. You want to shut down dialogue with, with people right away in terms of people who use firearms? Start talking in language that you just don't understand. It's no different than in healthcare, right? You want to listen to somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about? What I will tell you is um, uh, if we talk about semi-automatic weapons, they're very effective and lethal for a number of reasons. Okay, the AR-15, uh, which is sort of a model of the M16, why was it created? It was created because you know, larger ammo, 7.62 full metal jacket, uh, uh, ammunition's heavy, okay? Um, uh, and if we come up with a lighter, um, a lighter rifle, a lighter round with high velocity and a specific shape, we can do a lot of tissue damage, uh, but make the individual rifleman more effective. That's why that, that rifle was designed, okay? It minimized recoil based on a spring recoil, um, uh, and it's more accurate. You've got less reload time. Uh, uh, it's a really effective weapon if you want to kill people quickly, but it's not because of an automatic mode. Um, uh, if you've ever fired an automatic weapon, how many people in this room have fired an automatic weapon? Okay, a few. Okay, I carried an M60 for a year and a half in the Army, and what I will tell you is it's fantastic in terms of laying down suppressive fire if it's got a tripod, okay, and you've got an ammo carrier, an ammo barrier, um, but if you want to use you know, your own personal rifle, an automatic, it's just not efficient, okay? You can't stay on target. Um, suppressive fire from something that's not on a tripod is not terribly effective. Uh, but if you want to go in and clear a room, a semi-automatic weapon, okay, pull the trigger once and it reloads and fires. It's a very effective way. And we're seeing that in school shootings. I'll tell you what, you can move through a room and you can clear it out real, real quickly. It's horrible. It's horrifying. But it's not an automatic weapon. It's not an automatic weapon. How about an assault weapon? How do we define that? Um, uh, this gets more challenging, because now what ultimately you're trying to do is you're trying to build a law of you know, uh, how, how are we gonna restrict um, uh, uh, assault weapons? And it's problematic, this is 1994, okay? And the reality is, and uh, you know, certainly John can attest to this, okay? We've had this discussion before. Um, uh, but a lot of this is you know, people who own firearms say, this is cosmetic bullshit, really, in terms of you know, a, really a bayonet mount. That's how we're gonna define it if you've got a bayonet mount or a shroud or a flash suppressor. Those are not critical things in terms of capacity and killing people, but they're cosmetic things that people could easily work around. That's exactly what the firearm industry did. Okay, so real problematic in terms of a lot of these things. You can throw around a term like assault weapon Again, someone who's relatively well-informed can ask you, well, what exactly do you mean by that? When what you really care about are these issues, okay? Your capacity, your ability to reload, your accuracy, your ballistics, that's what we need to target and that's what we need to limit. Weapons that can do the damage that we're seeing in terms of that. How about the NRA? 
You think an effective organization? Yes. Remarkably effective, okay? Uh, and also very motivated from a political standpoint. This is an organization that was founded in 1871 for what? To improve marksmanship. We wanted our citizens and soldiers to perform better in war. That's why it was formed. And in 1977, a group of people who started really frustrated uh, based on the 68 law that we talked about, people who were Second Amendment fundamentalists, people who believe that owning a firearm and protecting your family is a righteous way to live. They truly believe that. Okay, they live by that. But these people, they, they staged a hostile takeover of the NRA from the convention floor in 1977. Um, I don't know how well they were funded. I assume they were probably funded pretty well, and they certainly are now. But that grassroots passion is ultimately what's gone from 1977 to today, despite the fact they aren't on the, 50, uh, uh, the top 50 list of donations to political campaigns in terms of, uh, uh, you know, at least for 2016, um, uh, individual organizations. Uh, what I will tell you is they have a lobbying arm. It's legis the ILA, which was formed in 1975. We have no idea how much money they're, do they're uh, donating to campaigns. Um, from what we know, they gave $30 million to the presidential campaign uh, uh, in 2016. Um, the, the exact numbers that they are, are donating, who the hell knows? But, okay, let's take a look at what they are capable of doing. You talk about taking you know, Delta um, uh, mile benefits away from their members, that's it. All Delta wanted to do was say, you know something? We're not gonna, we're not gonna give the NRA any more benefits than they would anyone else. We're just gonna stay neutral in this. And the Georgia legislature, okay, with Atlanta Airport, Delta big hub down there, you know, billion dollar contributor to their bottom line, they're gonna sit there and snub their nose at them within two weeks of parking. Think about the amount of power you actually have to have to be able to achieve this. Rubio, a week after Parkland, says, no, I'm, I'm, willing, to, I'm willing to take uh, uh, campaign donations from them. Why? Okay. Number one, because the NRA has 40 years plus of staying power. They're not going anywhere. And number two, the American public appears to have the attention span of a gnat. So these politicians believe that you are going somewhere. Okay. Whether or not they're right or not, I don't know. So lessons learned on the COT firearms injury prevention consensus building. Okay, I love this. Okay, because ultimately I, I think this is a really powerful document, Brendan, uh, that you guys put out, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. What do we need to do as healthcare providers? Number one, we need to be well informed on this issue. And we need to do what we do best. We need to focus on doing the right things for our patients, but we need to acknowledge and, and respect opposing narratives. If you immediately shut people down, okay, if you're immediately closed off towards hearing their point of view, particularly if they're better informed than you are, we're not gonna get anywhere. And ultimately what we need to do is we need to focus on improving safety and reducing harm rather than on restricting illegal firearm ownership, okay? Or legal, I apologize, legal, legal. Um, uh, I think that has to be our focus. Uh, in order to do this, we can't do it alone. Um, we need to do this through partnerships with a number of people who have knowledge in their particular area of expertise. So we're healthcare providers. Law enforcement, educators, legal scholars, policymakers, legislatures, everyone needs to be at the table. Um, and this needs to be a long-term effort. We've done this before in Connecticut. Uh, uh, Brendan arranged in 2013 a firearm uh, policy forum. Um, it was, I attended it, I thought it was really fantastic. Um, that was a great sort of launching pad for some of the state legislation that we have. Um, I think there's an opportunity now to do this again, but I think the goals have to be different. 
I think the goals need to be to demonstrate that we can have a discussion, we can have people with opposing points of view at the table and come up with solutions that can be agreeable to both sides. That really needs to be our focus, in my opinion. Um, because this, I mean, <clears throat> to look at this is tough. It's tough. Um, everybody sitting in this room, most people were here for Newtown. I remember sitting at my desk waiting for something to come and it didn't, it was horrible. Um, you know, we didn't get anything. Uh, um, that being said, um, uh, this is not the only problem that we face in firearms. What we need to understand is 19 children today in the United States of America are going to either be killed or end up in an emergency room because of a firearm injury. And as public health provider, you know, people interested in public health, that needs to be our focus. Not just this, okay, but firearm injuries in general. Solutions are going to need to be multidimensional. We have cultural problems in this country that are contributing to this problem. We certainly have legislative opportunities to fix it. Um, in terms of law enforcement, public safety, uh, uh, they're obviously going to need to be actively involved in terms of how we prosecute this. While there can be short-term wins uh, in terms of school safety, what I can tell you is there's nothing that we're going to pass in the way of firearm legislation that's going to take 300 million guns and make them go away. Anyone who thinks uh, uh, otherwise is naive. I'm sorry. I don't mean to be dismissive, but it's naive. We need to be sensitive to geographic and political variation within the United States. I promise you the opinion of people in this room does not represent the majority of Americans. It doesn't. We need to be aware of that. We can't be smug. We need to be respectful. Uh, and the road forward for a public health approach to addressing pediatric firearm violence, we need to build bridges and acknowledge that the majority of firearm uses do not result in personal injury. Okay, I've been, I've been using firearms for decades. Um, I still haven't shot myself in the foot with a gun. With my mouth, but not with a gun. Okay? With focus on mechanisms.